Take your Bible as we continue now. Uh, for those of you who have been with us uh, for a couple of months, we've been going through the book of Esther, which uh, let me set some context for you, particularly for those of you who um, uh, have not been with us. Perhaps this is your first time. We are doing a broad sweep through the books of Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah. So we started in Esther, and remember this is the last of the, the history of the nation of, of Israel before that period of time, about 400 years until we come to the New Testament and the birth of the Savior. So it's a very, very important time. The Jews have come out of captivity in Babylon. They've come back into the land and they are rebuilding. First, the, uh, the temple, we saw that in the first six chapters of Ezra. And then we took a break because because historically, the book of Esther fits here, about a 60 to 100 year ta- time span. And uh, the events of the book of Esther, the deliverance of the Jewish people from a wicked plot uh, occur. And then we'll come back and pick up Ezra chapter 7 and go on through Nehemiah. Now, we find ourselves in Ezra chapter 8. I hope you have your Bible, or if you're using smart device, that's okay, and I hope you have your, your outline in front of you. If you want to take notes, I'll be using Scripture to support some of the applications and some of the things that we're saying. But before I get to the actual outline that's on there, let me just give the broad sweep of what we're seeing God doing in these days. To quote a great theologian, Yogi Berra, not Yogi Bear. But Yogi Berra, and some of us remember that, a sports figure, catcher for the New York Yankees, and he had a lot of, a lot of little sayings that were great. One of them was, it's not over until it's over. God has a plan. And even in a book that seems like a glorified fairy tale, we find that God is working out His redemptive plan. It's continuing to unfold throughout the Old Testament. Things in the story of Esther are being resolved. And particularly some of my Awana kids, the last time we met one young man in my group, we were going over the verses and he asked me how I was doing and how everything was going. And I began to just tell him, oh, everything's going well and all the rest of that. And he just waited until I was finished. He was very polite. And he said, is everything going according to plan? <laughs> and I said, yes, Matthias, everything is going according to plan. I, I, you know, it's amazing how these children are listening. And here's the thing, more than just telling a story, Here's what we want for our children, for our students, for our adults, for those who are in their later years. We want our people to believe that they serve a big God. Even the sinful acts of man, even our own sinful acts, somehow God has woven into his master plan They are foreseen. I don't care which word you want to use. If you prefer the word foreseen or permitted, I prefer the word ordained. They have their exact place. They are 
ordered for His glory. And that means that everything that you've gone through this last year and everything that maybe you'll go through in this next week, and I'm talking about from the, the, the seeming, in, just the, the small things to the very, very large things, even the things that cause us suffering, and, and Paul reminds us in one of his letters, this light, get this, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who went through all kinds of things of suffering, and he calls it this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. And, and we somehow need to be sharing that with our children over and over and over again, particularly in times where we consider that they are uncertain. Even the most single sinful act in all of human history, and a lot of you know this, but some of you don't. And if you've been sinned against grievously, if you've been hurt, if you've been overlooked, I could just go down the list. You need to realize that God even used the most single sinful act in all of human history. The perfect Son of God was taken by the hands of of sinful men and nailed to a cross. That too is redemptive. We know that. But look at how God says it in, in the book of Acts in two different places. This Jesus delivered up according to the, what? Definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He's big enough to do that. Was crucified, killed by the hands of lawless men. It, we're reminded to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to occur. And that means for you and for me that God is graciously able to do the impossible and turn our great sorrow into great joy. Now, I'm going to come back at the end. That sounds familiar because that's the Christmas story, but it's also the story of, out of Esther chapter 8. Remember, it's still a dark time for the Jews. Now, some of you who are here for the first time, could I just do a compressed version of the first uh, seven chapters for you? Maybe it'll be good for the rest of us too. Uh, we're, we're, we're in that time where Jews have been allowed to go back to Judea and rebuild, but there are still some Jews there in Persia, in Susa, the capital. And uh, short story is... Uh, uh, Hasserus, who is the king, Xerxes is his Greek name. He, he is a, uh, he, he, he's just an interesting character. He's very complex, I guess we would say today. So he deposes his queen, and they have a beauty contest to pick a new queen. And guess who wins? A little Jew Jewish orphan girl being raised by her cousin, Mordecai. Her name is Hadassah. That's her, that's her Hebrew name. But they call her in Persian, they call her Star or Esther, and she is. She steals the king's heart. She's put into the place of the queen. And then, in any good story, we have a bad guy that shows up, Haman. Thank you. Haman the Agagite. Now, if you haven't been here uh, before now, we found that at the Feast of Purim that the, the Jews still practice today, whenever they read the, the story of Esther, and it's read during this feast, whenever they read the story, whenever Haman's name is mentioned, who was a Malachite, an Agagite, who was the, the enemy of the Jews, whenever his name is, is read, 
they, everybody, adults, children, all of them boo and hiss, and they have noisemakers called groggers, and they wind them, and they make all kinds of noise to blot out the name of Haman. And we're going to find that it's already started in the last chapter. So Haman's the bad guy. He devises a plot to get rid of all the Jews. This is total annihilation, genocide. All the Jews everywhere, which is not just a story about genocide. It means that if there are no Jews, guess what? There's no, in approximately 500 years, there's no Messiah. Who's really behind this? Satan, the enemy of our souls. It doesn't say it here. But we know that is true. And so it goes through the story. Uh, Haman's plot is revealed by Queen Esther in a really interesting... You just need to go back and read it if you haven't read it. Uh, because it's a great story. And it brings us up to chapter 8. It is still a dark time for the Jews. Because even though Haman has just been impaled on a 75-foot sharpened stick says hanged on a gallows but you'll read in your cross reference that's exactly how the persians used to uh punish people and he's he's dead by this time and so we take up the the story uh at the beginning of chapter 8 just to bring you up to date but l- let me just let me just say this stop right here and give you some encouragement in case you've ever wondered about where you are in your Christian life. It may still be a dark time for you, even though some of your enemies have been defeated. I'm not talking about literal people, maybe. But it may still be a dark time for you. See, Haman, their their big problem is gone. But their big issue capital B, capital I, capital G, their big issue is still unresolved. It's not over until it's over. And God is going to say, and we're going to see the beginning of it, that he is going to finish what he starts. Do you know that that is one of the greatest applications that you and I can have in the Christian life? Anybody here besides me ever wondered if you would make it as a Christian? I mean, really. Now, we're a good Baptist, and we know the once saved to always save. But sometimes in our, in our darker moments, when we have fallen back into sin or, or whatever the case may be, mentally or in, in actions, and there are times when I have said, Lord, am I going to make it? And there are just some marvelous encouragements that are in the Scriptures, I used to think that when I really started following the Lord as a 21-year-old, and, and Philippians 1.6 became one of my life verses, uh, I used to think that was just something for young and, and not very well-read Christians. And I've, I've since discovered that some of the older, more mature saints also struggle with this. And I just want to say from these verses from Job that I was reading in, in, in my quiet time this last week as we finish up our, our year's worth of reading, And and I thought this is a great time to just stop and remind our church that God is a finisher. The Bible promises that God will finish the good work he has begun in you. Okay? Now, the main thing here today is to make sure he's begun a good work in you. 
by turning away from your sin, repenting, and believing in Jesus Christ. But I just love it. Job says, he will complete what he appoints for me. Remember where Job was when he wrote this, or when it was recorded that he said this. And many such things are in his mind. And then Paul brings us up to this, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to fruition or completion, perfection in the day of Christ Jesus. So with that, let's look at the outline. Let's jump in. I'm going to read this uh, bit by bit. So we're going to start in chapter 8 and verses 1 and 2. The title of these two verses is simply, The King Gives Esther a Gift and Mordecai a Promotion. On that day, what day? The day that Haman was was killed. That very day. I mean, things are moving quickly. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman. That is no small thing. The enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king. Remember, Mordecai is her cousin who raised her. He was an older cousin. He was basically her, her dad. And, and King Ahasuerus had no idea that he was going to be meeting his father-in-law. When he, he, he knew of Mordecai, he had just paraded him around in, in gratefulness for him saving him from a plot. Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which was the symbol of authority, which he had taken from Haman, who was the prime minister until he was... Uh, killed, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now again, on that day, chapter 8 really begins with the last verse in chapter 7. They hanged, let me just put it the way again, the the way it, it, it really happened. They hanged him, impaled Haman on the gallows, the sharpened stake that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king Abated. Now, let me just stop and make another application about Haman. This is a tragic end for Haman, but predictable, right? Does anybody remember what I said, and I kind of used it for shock effect last week? Have you ever been around someone as evil and wicked as Haman? And my guess is that you were kind of running through your mind's eye and picking out particular people that had caused you problem, grief in your life. And then I said, in case you're having trouble, just look in the mirror. And what I meant was that, by that was this, that you have not sinned in the likeness of Haman, so in degree it may be different, but in kind it is the same. So don't let Haman's tragic end be yours. Well, that never happened to me. I've been proud unnecessarily. There is, there is a necessary pride in, in the way we do our work and things like that. But there, there is pride that even Christians who've been redeemed experience, and and all people deal with that, all people, all, particularly men are are 
just given to this. Pride goes before destruction. That's a pick. Haman is, is a commentary on that verse right there. A haughty spirit before a fall. Well, actually, he was lifted up. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. A stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. That's not karma. Karma copied the Bible, okay? Really. All of the good stuff of other religions comes straight out of the Bible. But the one thing that they don't have is Jesus as a redeemer. And that's why they all fail. And only Christianity can tell us really like it is. Mark says this, For what does it profit a man like Haman or like you, or like me, to gain the whole world, to be second in command in the whole realm of Persia. The prime minister, incredible wealth. I'm talking, well, I don't know. But you remember last week I mentioned that he, if you go back, he offered the king 300 tons of silver. Now, did he have it? We don't know. Was he going to get it when he killed all the Jews? We don't know. But listen, we're we're talking the wealth of a a Bill Gates or or something like that. So this was no small thing here. He was after it all. And like the old saying, the old saying, he climbed the ladder of success only to find out that it was leaning on the wrong wall. The law of the day was this, and that's why in those first two verses, why would the king, the king would get whoever was his enemy and they were killed, he would get their possessions. But what did the king do? Turned around and gave it to Esther. It was his to do with as he wished. But again, the Bible speaks of these kinds of things. This is not just a, a little nice, tidy story. It's tied to, to truths in all of Scripture. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And that's what good men do. But look at this. The sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. So Esther receives it. It was an incredible estate. The law of the day said that she, she was able to get it because the king gave it to her. And what did she too do? Lo and behold, she turned around and gave it to Mordecai, Haman's hated enemy. Now, you talk about a total reversal. I thought about it last week. And so I wrote it down like this. Haman got the point. But it was too late. And last week, I, I finished the message with a, with a heart appeal. Don't wait. H- Haman was sorry for getting caught, but he was not truly repentant. Now, only God can grant repentance and faith, but it is up to us, and it's up to the preacher whenever he proclaims the word, to proclaim repentance from your sins and faith toward Jesus Christ and to appeal, to beg, to plead with people, do not wait until it's too late. And he did. He got the point. It was too late. Mordecai got the raise. He got the ring. He got the royal crown. And he got the robe. 
literally, and we'll, we'll see this in a minute, the, the, the robe, literally rags to riches. Don't you remember that when he first heard the decree, all Jews were going to die? What did Mordecai do? Ripped off his clothes, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes at the gate. Now, he, he did get to wear the king's robes for a while, but my guess is he took them off and went back to the gate in sackcloth. So in a minute, see, this is 24 hours period of time, he went literally from rags to riches, from being a servant at the gate to being the king's father-in-law. I'm assuming that's a good thing. And second, in command. Let's move on to the second point, okay? Just a lot here. All right, second point, verses 3 through 8. No way out. Evil Haman's decree of death is irrevocable. Then Esther spoke again to the, queen, uh, to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, now you've got to get a picture of this. This was just like the first time she went in uninvited. She could have died. She was being gutsy again, okay? So he held out the, king, the, the, the royal scepter, the golden scepter to Esther, which was a sign of acceptance. Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, if it pleased the king. I, I love her, her sense of deference, not demanding. Listen to this. If it pleased the king. If I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, wow, this, look at that. That's not, that's very sincere. I think she must have trained at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> if, it, if it pleases the king, my pleasure. Let an order be written, listen, watch this, to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamath, Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the, provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, he kind of shows a little bit of what he's really like, and Mordecai the Jew, well, and let me just paraphrase, well, what's the big deal? I've given Esther the house of Haman. They've hanged him on the gallows. They've impaled him on the stake because he intended to lay hands on the Jew. What else do you want me to do? But then he said, you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring, which was on Mordecai now, for an edict written in the name of the king and seal it and sealed with the king's ring because it cannot be revoked. Since the beginning of time, well, since the beginning of the initiation of human societies, of human cultures, of human governments, people have had to live under the folly or even evil of incompetent governments with their decrees and mandates. And there is a particular frustration when government leaders are weak, 
swayed by questionable advisors, or they seem out of touch with what their mandates mean for real people in their country. I'm talking about King Ahasuerus in Persia because that is exactly what we see. Haman's mandate for death for the Jews, really, Haman was the one that got it together, but it could go nowhere without the king's approval, his signet ring. And in his folly, he listened to his advisors and said, okay, he seemed almost totally unaware of what it was going to do. Until right around this time in chapter 7 and chapter 8. And so here's Esther and he begins to realize this is not just the Jews that it's going to kill. My wife, my beloved queen is also a Jew. And so she intercedes for her people. But we come to verse 8, and guess what? The decree, now listen to this because this is key for our application. The decree cannot be overturned. It was the law of the Medes and the Persians that once the king had okayed a law, it was on the books. It can't be undone. And I was thinking this last week, and obviously my, my head was exploding <laughs> with all of the different applications. And folks, I, I am not talking just about one particular country in a particular location. This is the way it is around the world. And when you bring it close in, this is the way it is in each one of our individual lives. See, there are all kinds of mandates that are undoable. It may have to do, and let me just fill in the blanks, it may have to do with illness. Like I shared last week, a friend of mine who two months ago was diagnosed with metastatic pancreatic cancer. There are a few survivors. One of them's in this room today of pancreatic cancer. Not many. Chuck passed away this last week. A mandate of death. There are other kinds of mandates. Sometimes it's relationships. And once they're undone or done or something happens to them, sometimes there's no change. There's no recalling. And I could just go down the list. Sometimes it has to do with finances or employment. But that's where we go back. And that's why we're teaching our children. And we're teaching all of us that our God is a big God. And our God is ultimately in control. Man is not ultimately in control. Your circumstances are not ultimately in control. So what's the solution? Well, let me just give you a hint. We're going to see it in the next section. The only solution, because the mandate can't be overturned. They're dead. That's it. The, the, the Persians were commanded to attack all Jews and annihilate them. That can't be undone. So what's the solution? Are you getting a little bit of a redemptive feel for this? 
a mandate of death that can't be undone. So what do you do when there's no solution, like you can't undo the mandate? The only solution is to write a new one. To make a new decree. To make a new and a better decree that will cover the old decree of death. And lo and behold, a little story of a, of a Jewish girl who becomes a queen is all of a sudden we begin to see it unfold and it's the picture of redemption. The decree of death stands, not just physical death, which was going to come to the Jews. Now, by the way, do you know that every Jew that was under the, the decree of death, even if somehow they could, they could not be affected by that, they could live, they ultimately were going to die. So you've got to see that there's something bigger going on. Everyone in this room is going to die a physical death unless the Lord comes back before you die physically. Please tell me you understand that. It, it, it's, it, whether it's by just old age, or it's cancer, or it's COVID, or it's any number of diseases, or it's an accident, everyone in this room, barring the return of the Lord Jesus, is going to die a physical death. So that part of the decree still stands, but there is a spiritual reality to that. And let me just give you a couple of verses. Maybe you'll want to write these down and look at them because they relate not only to the physical, but the, the spiritual. There's another verse that's not up here. The soul that sins will die. Adam found that out. Physical death. Spiritual death. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So there it is. Romans and then Hebrews says this, and this is the reality, and people are so incredibly... I, Maybe they've been as afraid in the past of physical death. But boy, there, there is a lot of fear about physical death all over the world today. The wages of sin is death, but there is another kind of death that even is, is more fearful. It is appointed for a man once to die, physical death, and then after that comes the judgment in which those who have not receive Jesus Christ at the judgment will be cast into the lake of fire for an eternity. And that's why there's fear. There's fear, even with people who reject what I just said. Because there's such an unknown on the other side of physical death. And that's why Jesus came to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil and to deliver all of those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There is such a slavery when people fear death. But here's what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Don't fear those who can kill the body. Whether it's a, it's a literal physical person, or it's a pathogen, or it, it, it's whatever else it might be. There are many ways we can die. Don't fear those who can kill the body, but who cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body 
in hell. Is, is that clear? I think Haman slid into the deception that many people in our culture do. If I just have enough money, if I just have the prestige, the power, if I just have, and you can fill in the blank, again, the ladder leaning on the, the, the wrong wall, somehow I can, no, you can't. The richest man in the world is someday going to stand before the, the great white throne at, at the judgment, along with the poorest man in the world. And so what's the solution? We, we, can't, we can't escape the decree of death. So what's the solution? Okay, the only solution, thank you, Ed, is that a new decree be written that can counter the old decree. And by the way, we know New Testament, it can only be written in blood. Let's go on to the third part of this. Verses 9 through, this is a little bit longer, so hang with me while I read this because this is important. 9 through 14, deliverance through Mordecai's new decree of life instead of death. This is when it starts to get kind of fun. They, they are going to break into a celebration at the end because of this new decree. So, the king's scribes were summoned at this time. Fascinating. This is so fascinating when you read through it. In the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, remember this happened in the first month. So it's not exactly like this, but think in, in terms of our calendar, the, the, the first decree came in January, our January. This is happening about in March. What do we celebrate in March or April? Passover. Ooh, Okay. But it's going to come, the, 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 punish, uh, the, the decree is going to be carried out in December, okay? 23rd, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews. To the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language. This is really detailed. And also to the Jews and their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent letters. I love this. And it didn't say this about Haman. He sent letters by mounted couriers, think Pony Express. But this time they weren't, they weren't driving these little white trucks that come deliver your mail. It's like a Ferrari mail truck. Okay? Here's how, here's how we know that. Couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. The king wanted the new edict, the new decree to get out. He wanted the word out, saying, verse 11, that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city, now watch this again carefully, to gather and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate, exact same words, any armed force of people or, provi uh, or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Hang on to that thought. That may be troubling. We're going to come back. 
on that on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adair. That's the exact day that the Persians were commanded to kill the Jews. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift Ferrari horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. So just like the old decree, if you want to go back, it says basically to kill, to steal, to destroy, to annihilate the Jews. And by the way, does this remind you of anything in the New Testament? Who is the one who kills and steals and destroys? And his wicked plot is going to be undone. Just like the roaring lion prowls about seeking someone to devour. By the way, just remember, there is a holy war against you, Christian, and against your loved ones. It still continues. So what were the Jews given permission to do? Now, this is key. The new decree allowed, not commanded, allowed the Jews to take up arms and to defend themselves from the enemies who came after them. They were not given permission to attack the Persians. If the, if the Persians had not attacked, there would have been zero bloodshed. Now, you may not agree with this, but as I observed through the years, the Middle East conflict, this is still, by and large, the way the Jews do today. So don't attack them if you don't want them to defend themselves. They were not to initiate violence on the general population, but they were given permission to stand for their own people. Later on, Nehemiah is going to write about the enemies of the Jews. Don't be afraid of them. Remember that the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, for your sons, for your daughters, for your wives, and for your homes. Now, what in the world does it mean when it says, back in verse 11, children and women included? That's, that's a troubling verse unless you just read it. They were told to defend themselves from anyone who was armed who came at them as an enemy, including women and including children. I do not read this as them going against the men and then killing the women and children who were innocent. But rather any woman we see this sometimes, and any child who armed themselves to come after and to kill them, they were given permission to defend themselves and kill their enemy. Okay, listen very carefully. 
It's bad enough to be understood, let alone misunderstood, okay? Really. This may sound like a justification for physical holy war, jihad. It may sound like God telling the Israelites to take up the sword and force their Christian neighbors, unchristian neighbors, or unJewish neighbors in this sense, to submit or die. That is not what this is. This is for the Jews to be granted permission to take up arms and defend themselves and defend their families and defend their property. Could I say it like this? Against all invaders, foreign and domestic. And everyone who's in the military and everyone in, in our country who is a naturalized citizen says that is exactly what we will do. I know there's a fine line for this, and I'm not going to say, oh, this teaches the Second Amendment. But at the very minimum, what it might say as an application is that it is right for you and for me to defend ourselves and our families from aggressors. That's an application. I'm not saying that that's what it is saying to do, but it is certainly included in the thought. Remember, there's something much more, the plan of redemption. Let's go on to finish up with this. Great fear and great sadness, verses 15 through 17. Great fear and great sadness is turned into great joy and celebration. What a difference a decree makes. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, great golden, golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple in the city of Susa, shouted and rejoiced. Now just remember what they were doing previously. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. Wow. And in every province and every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jew. This is interesting for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. They said, uh-oh, we, 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 better, we better get with the winning team here. And some of them joined with the Jews. I don't know if it was just, it was sincerity or they were just trying to save their skins. Now, this is the, the, the upshot of this, okay? We've said a lot of things and we've had a lot of applications, but remember that this points to a bigger picture and, and there, there are certain things that in the Scriptures, they will give us hints for this. I said a minute ago, what a difference a decree makes. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And that's not just talking about getting out of a situation in time, a temporal situation. That's talking about an ultimate reality. 
And they went, now I, I just combined some things here. In chapter 3 and chapter 4, here's what they went from. When the decree of Haman was handed down, the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Crying out with a loud and bitter cry, there was great mourning, fasting, weeping, lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. From that to this, the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. And I, I, it, he just spills out these words, had light and gladness and joy and honor, and there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. What had changed? I planned that for dramatic effect. <laughs> That's all right. Those things happen, hey, no problem. What had changed? That's okay, Sue, that's all right. I, yeah. It's happened to me before. No. Uh, think of it. Now, watch this. Nothing had changed except a new decree had been put on top of the old decree. And when that happened, great fear was turned into great joy. And great sadness was turned into great celebration. Even though the other decree was still out there, there was a new decree. Who could possibly bring about a change like that? Only God, you've turned for me my mourning into dancing. Boy, I, I look out and I just see people who have gone through things that I, I, I've not experienced. And I, wow, bless you for being so faithful and looking to God. And this is reality for many of you. You've, you've turned, God, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. What can make a, a change like this in a city, in a nation, in a life, in a home, in a heart? Only God. And that's why yesterday we celebrated, and some of you are celebrating the next couple of days, depending on when your family arrives in town or whatever the case may be. As I said, at Christmas, we, we celebrate Christmas as a holiday once a year, but the reality of the Savior coming into the world and growing up and becoming a perfect man to die and, and giving that new decree for us on top of the old of death turns our sadness into joy, turns our fear into great celebration. Luke chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, an angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, 
And they were, and this really does not get to the Greek. Uh, it's good. This is the ESV. Other versions come closer. King James says they were sore afraid. As a kid, I always thought that was sore afraid. They were sore afraid. <laughs> sore afraid. They, you know what the word in, in the Greek is? They were filled, and, and it's interesting because we get a lot of words from this, mega fear. The word is mega, huge, explosive fear. And when the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you the euangelion. I bring you the evangel. I bring you the good news, the gospel of Great joy, guess what that word is? Mega joy. From mega fear to mega joy for all of the people. That's what Christ has done for you and for me. He's put the decree of life over the decree of death. And what can we do? Well, Do you guys have a favorite Christmas movie? I'm not even going to ask. I know I would give a, get a variety of everything. Anyway, okay. Our favorite Christmas movie that we've watched for years and years and years, it was, it was put out in 1970. Most of the actors are now dead. Albert Finney played Scrooge in the musical Scrooge. We just like it for a number of reasons. In an earthly sense, it's, it's, it's good. It's a nice little story of a bad guy becoming a good guy, of a real selfish guy becoming a nice guy. And, and it's a nice little story. But in the very end, it's really telling. And this is the reason I love it. And our family knows that Jan and I will just sometimes break into the song that Tom Jenkins one of the guys that owes Ebenezer Scrooge some money. He can never pay it off, and Scrooge keeps coming back and adding to his debt. And finally, after Ebenezer Scrooge has had the revelation, and he comes to Tom Jenkins, and he comes to all of them, and he does this with his debt book. He tears it out. He says, I'm forgiving you of your debt. I'm tearing it out. And everybody is amazed. And Tom Jenkins comes up to him and he breaks into song. And he says, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's the nicest thing that anyone's ever done for me. Now, I had never looked up the words to the first verse, but I thought, this is pretty cool. It may sound, and he uses an old English idiom here, it may sound double Dutch. I, didn't, I wasn't familiar with that. It means confusing. It may sound double Dutch, but my delight is such. I feel as if a losing war's been won for me. A losing war has been won for me. And I thought, Wow, did, did a Christian sneak something in there?
It is a losing war if we look at the debt of our sin and try to be good enough to undo it. It's just not going to be. Not by going to church or being a Baptist, heaven forbid. There's only one way the debt is going to be paid, and Colossians chapter 2 tells us that, that he has taken our debt and he has nailed it, Christian, to the cross. He's taken it out of the way. That's why I said a few weeks ago that a book like Esther can be preached at Christmas and every Sunday because it is a gospel book. And that's what Jesus has done for us when his new decree of life has taken the place of the old decree of death. But it's not automatic. It comes to those who have repented of their sin. What is sin? Violating a couple of little rules? No, it's playing God and fighting God. Repenting of that and turning, humbling ourselves and receiving Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, and his forgiveness purchased for us on Calvary's cross. And that's the gospel. And that's what you and I need to believe so that we can move from mega fear to mega joy. Father, I thank you and praise you for the wonder of your word whether it is sung or prayed or preached or received, and I pray that it would be received today. And for those who do not yet know you, that today would be the day their eyes and their hearts are open to the truth. They would see the, the nature of their sinful condition before you, a holy God, and know that the decree of death is just, and it is upon them. And Father, they would look at the decree of life in Jesus Christ and they would trust in Christ for their salvation even today. Lord, for those of us who know you, God, may we, no matter what the circumstances around us, may we find ourselves daily, many times throughout the day, saying thank you so much, God. Thank you for winning that losing war for us. And so we pray now that we would respond as we should, Lord, prompted by the power of your Holy Spirit. We know that you will do all things well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.